My name is John Samples. I'm a vice president here at Cato. Um, welcome also to our Cato Forum today, addressing the question, will social media save democracy? Today, we will have a discussion among our guests for about an hour, followed by your questions. And then, of course, as always at Cato, we will have lunch. Social media is much discussed these days, and not just because we have the first president who unleashes tweet storms. Social media often prompts concern. I myself began this event with the title, Does Social Media Threaten Democracy? But then a friend pointed out, no more control by gatekeepers means more and different views articulated. Some years ago, the prominent law professor, also Jack uh, Balkan, argued that a kind of cultural democracy would be a major value and a major consequence of the internet. So there's a positive side that I think we have been missing in the American discussions lately. But some views are not just different, but reprehensible. And there might be a lot more of them without the gatekeepers. That's the concern, or at least one of the concerns. The other one being that these views and others can affect our elections. Thus, Andrew Morantz in a New Yorker article posed the question, how do we fix life online without limiting free speech? He then wrote, quote, there is no good solution to this problem, unquote. Maybe he will have a different opinion today. Uh, but maybe not. The, his article uh, is an important one about Reddit and makes a strong case that that is the truth. No good solution? Justice Louis Brandeis long ago offered what has become, for all of us, not just libertarians, a libertarian answer to that question. And the, the, the answer is, what do you do? The question is, what do you do about bad speech? Brandeis wrote almost 90 years ago, quote, the fitting remedy for evil counsels is good ones. If there be a time to expose through discussion the falsehoods and fallacies, to avert the evil by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence, unquote. Has Brandeis' answer been undone by technological innovations? Does it matter if the private business people, not government officials, the people that are the head of Reddit, are the ones enforcing the silence? And of course, there's other questions related to democracy. This just doesn't, our discussions don't have to be just about free speech. Today, our guests will address all of these topics, or many of them. So I will begin with introductions. And then thereafter, everyone except Andrew will speak for five minutes about the topic. And then Andrew will moderate the rest of the discussion and also oversee the Q&A. So let me start with uh, George Holly from second from your right. George is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Alabama. His books include Right-Wing Critics of American Conservatism, Making Sense of the Alt-Right, and Demography, Culture, and the Decline of America's Christian <coughs> Denominations. Alexandra Woodward, uh, second on your, from your left, uh, is the Digital Organizing Director of Organizing for Action, the nonpartisan community organizing and issue advocacy organization that grew out of President Obama's presidential campaigns. She has directed one of the largest digital communications programs in the country and orients her work toward building healthier communities empowered to be the agents of local and national change. In the center is Andrew Morantz, a contributing editor who has written for The New Yorker since 2011. 
He wrote Reddit and the struggle to detoxify the internet in the March 19th issue, available at your nearest internet portal. I urge you to read it. It's an extremely good article. Ned Ryan, who is on the far end of uh, your right, uh, is the founder and CEO of American Majority, a grassroots training organization. The son of former Congressman Jim Ryan, Ned is a frequent TV commentator and his op-eds can be seen at The Hill and American Greatness. And finally, to my immediate left and to your, uh, on the edge, on the le your left, Katie Harbath is a global politics and government director at Facebook. Prior to Facebook, Katie was the digital, chief digital strategist at the National Republican Senatorial Committee. She previously led digital strategy in positions at DCI Group, the Rudy Giuliani for President campaign, and the Republican National Committee. Andrew, over to you. Okay. So we were going to start with, uh, you guys were going to give remarks. So why don't we just go uh, this way? And yeah, take it Perfect. When we talk about social media's impact on democracy, I think it's time we have a conversation about how we define social media and tech companies moving forward. And what does it actually mean in the 21st century to have free speech and free expression in the public arena and who actually should be the guardians of free speech in America? Social media has had serious, measurable, positive effects for America. Gatekeepers are no longer able to keep conversations out that they don't approve of because social media platforms can be an extraordinary means of communicating directly with people. It allows people to have an in-run around these gatekeepers. There's no denying that upstarts and outsiders like Donald Trump or movements like Brexit were in fact helped by such things as Facebook and Twitter. And I think now we have to have a conversation moving forward in regards to social media's impact on democracy and potentially redefining these social media and tech giants in light of what they've become. In the beginning, and I would say we're still currently in that, there's a very light touch approach to these entities to give them the opportunity to grow. But now they've grown up and it's time for the kids in Silicon Valley to start operating under the rules governing the other adults, i.e. the other information and telecommunication providers. If entities are creating content, selling advertising, live streaming both live and produced original content, haven't they become publishers, essentially media and content companies like TV and radio, even becoming telecommunications companies by deploying broadband as Google is doing? Add to the fact that these tech and social media giants are collecting more personal, identifiable data every day, more so than the NSA, it's time to have a serious conversation regarding social media's potential impact to save, or quite frankly, destroy democracy. First, I think we need to at least acknowledge on some level that rule by algorithm is just as stringent as any rule by a dictator, perhaps even more so because of it, is, it is vague, faceless, and hard to define. A world ruled by algorithms closes off views, closes off debates, and balkanizes people. So in fact, how can these social media and tech giants save democracy when in fact I think they're becoming less democratic? It's becoming quite clear social media companies are anything but neutral platforms. We saw the revelation that Facebook was suppressing conservative news stories in their trending section in the 2016 elections. Choices are made within the algorithm are conscious choices about what you're allowed to publish and what will be hidden. We've already know that Facebook and Twitter have cooperated with governments hostile to free speech like Turkey, India, Pakistan, and Morocco to, to suppress speech these regimes oppose. Do these social media companies actually represent American values to the world? Or are they willing to help governments curtail the natural rights of the people to ensure that Facebook and Twitter earn market share? 
If social media companies are so ready to abandon the values that they say they care about in America, who's to say they will have any compunction to protect the speech of Americans? While I'm perfectly aware that algorithms are necessary to serve up content that people want to interact with, however, social media companies fail to be transparent on this front, and it's dangerous. Algorithm tweaking isn't neutral. It has a massive follow-on effect in the digital industry and political world, changing the kind of content that people see every day. While Facebook is apparently uncomfortable with the consequences of their actions in the most recent election and have decided to try and scale back the resources that were potentially used to help Trump win, something tells me they wouldn't have gone this direction if Hillary Clinton had ended up in the Oval Office. In fact, we saw Obama's campaign celebrated for using these tools, while of course denigrating the Trump team. While I do applaud Facebook's response to Cambridge Analytica, I fail to remember them taking the same response to the Obama campaign who likely sucked out five times more data than Cambridge Analytica. If algorithms start filtering away, say, controversial and sensitive opinions about issues like abortion, and it starts favoring some sides over the others, we should ask ourselves, with a small hand of controllers over the algorithms, who controls the controllers? I'd argue that now it's time for everyone to start playing under the same rules. Far be it for me to argue for more regulation or new rules. Perhaps it would be best if these social media and tech giants were brought under the 1996 Telecommunications Act, with the FCC providing the governance and oversight of these entities, instead of a rigged system that we are now operating under, to encourage, encourage greater competition. Isn't it far better that everyone plays by the same rules? Also, shouldn't we, we should not be afraid to, in the purpose of freedom of speech and expression, and to promote a healthier democracy, be afraid to break up monopolies. It's really not that hard to think of the kings of Silicon Valley as the robber barons of the 21st century. And there's actually a tradition in Republican politics of breaking up monopolies. Think 19, early 80s, Ronald Reagan and Ma Bell. The idea of a thriving democracy is for there to be debates, rigorous debates, in the public arena, in public venues, on public platforms. Isn't the inter internet nothing more than the modern day forum, a modern day venue for free expression of thought and ideas? Should we allow social media and tech companies to be the arbiters of free speech? Or in fact, should we allow the duly elected representatives of the American people and the Constitution to be the arbiters? To allow a very small handful of people to control debates via algorithms is to in fact undermine democracy, to destroy it. And I'm afraid some have shown themselves incapable and unwilling to be responsible corporate citizens. So it's time for us to completely re-examine how we approach who they are, how they're defined, and the power that's been given to them. Thanks. All right. Well, I suppose I should start by giving my answer to the question, will social media save democracy? And in my view, the answer is probably not, but I'm not sure that I agree with the premise of the question, which is that democracy is in danger and needs to be saved. Uh, nor am I sure that if democracy is in trouble, if it's reasonable to ask tech companies to take on such a grandiose task. Now, none of this is to say that you know, our democracy has no problems and we don't need to be concerned. My own research has obviously caused me to take a deep dive into some of the worst elements of the ideological online world. Um, I'm someone who would like to see civility and decorum in our public debates, and I don't think at this time Twitter and Facebook are facilitating that, though I don't know that I would blame uh, the creators of those platforms for that development. One thing that is worth noting, though, is that at least theoretically, 
social media is an ideologically neutral tool, and it's also a tool of the politically weak. Social media is a great equalizer in political communication. You don't need any kind of budget to build an audience on social media. You don't even need to provide your real name. On Twitter, a check mark is the only thing that distinguishes a mainstream public figure from an ordinary user, and I'm not even sure that that amounts to much. So social media becomes a favored tool of political stream extremists, largely because it's the only effective tool a lot of them have. Um, to use the example of the alt-right, social media was really their only available method for penetrating mainstream discourse. Although the far right has had, a premise, uh, has, has had a presence on the internet since the web was created, Twitter was really a game changer because it was a way for the radical right to escape uh, the confines of its own platforms, which were mostly ignored by people who weren't interested in their material. Obviously, um, extreme right websites have always been around, but if you weren't trying to find them, you might not ever know they existed. But social media became their means by which they could engage with the mainstream in a new way. And social media also changes the situation because it allows individuals and groups to very specifically target their message and in some cases their wrath and do so in a very public manner. There was a period, for example, in which the alt-right was able to use social media to essentially establish a false reality to journalists and other major public figures that had very large platforms. We need to remember that as of the start of 2015, the alt-right, or the so-called alt-right, was totally insignificant. But with the launch of the Trump campaign and heightened racial tensions and new concerns about racism and racist movements in the country, the alt-right saw an opp opportunity. And what it was able to do was use social media to target specific individuals with a massive amount of anti-Semitic and racist invective. And this was done by a fairly small number of people. But what they managed to do was effectively project themselves as a substantial and growing movement, as a real story that was part of the election cycle, um, ultimately culminating in Hillary Clinton herself dedicating an entire uh, speech to the subject. This trolling campaign that they engaged in led to a massive amount of free media and attention far beyond what they would have been able to create on their own. There is some truth to the alt-right's claim that it basically memed itself into existence and used technologically naive journalists and activists and politicians as tools in that regard. But before we panic about this and decide we need to rein in social media, I do think it's worth noting that any changes that we make to try to uh, hinder the ability of alt, the alt-right and related movements from growing has the potential to hinder other movements that would like to use these tools and perhaps similar methods in the future. And it is worth noting that comparatively few people were concerned about social media's disruptive power when it was used by things such as the Arab Spring or the Occupy movement. And I'm not sure that I support making massive new changes to either uh, public policy in this area or how social platforms operate because of how they were used by the alt-right in 2016, especially because I think that movement is on the decline and will likely not recover. So although I, I do not think that American democracy is in existential danger at the moment, I do think that we are nonetheless facing a disruptive period, and I'm not sure we've really developed a language for dealing with the issues that were, are coming up. 
For example, we're now furiously debating these questions of free speech. But I think the issue is a little bit different in the internet age. I mean, the standard libertarian response to the free speech question is that the government should never ban speech or only do so in very limited circumstances. But the libertarian perspective is also that private companies should be free to dictate how their platforms can be used and should therefore be able to ban people for whatever reason. And maybe that is the right approach. But given that the internet is now perhaps the most important means of communication, and it's mostly in private hands, I wonder how much practical effect that means the First Amendment really has. Now, I understand why libertarians would be uncomfortable with the government denying people their ability to speak, but is censorship okay if it is engaged in by a giant tech company who has a monopoly or near monopoly? I mean, perhaps, but I do think this is something we need to think about first. And I think these discussions might also put much of the left in a bit of an awkward situation as well. Although I can understand an argument stating that combating racism has to be the number one concern in overruling all others, I can imagine feeling a bit uneasy with the idea that we should allow a handful of Silicon Valley giants to dictate what can and cannot be said online. At least, at the very least, it seems like that position is in tension, is in tension with the idea that anyone is an opponent of unrestrained corporate power. So I'm open to the idea of treating certain aspects of the internet like public utilities. Um, I'm ambivalent about the issue, and there are a number of reasons that might be a bad idea. But in terms of the present conversation, one problem with it is that if we were to start doing that, that means that the internet would suddenly be subjected to the First Amendment, and that would make it harder to deny free speech rights to the most irresponsible voices. So at this point, it's not clear to me what is the uh, available option that will lead to the best outcome. So at present, the only thing I believe and would recommend is that people don't panic. As a number of very troubling things happened in the 2016 presidential election cycle, um, I'm not sure they represent any kind of long-term existential threat. And my hope is that any changes that are made by the governments or by the tech companies themselves, they will change how we interact online and will be made in a very sober manner and after much reflection and consideration of other possible consequences. Thank you. I, uh, I don't agree with Justice Brandeis that more speech is always the best answer, so I'm gonna <coughs> stay quiet for now and pass it on. <laughs> So I want to address a different part of the First Amendment, which is not, not just what happens on social media, it's not just the free speech, but it's our right to assemble. And not just our right to assemble, but our ability to assemble. So I, permit me to speak a little bit up front about a personal story. And for the historians in the room, I apologize if I get details wrong. This is coming from my, my, uh, my family. So my stepfather was born in 1944 in Lithuania as the Soviets were invading. And they had a very clever, clever strategy. They were asking people to, um, to just give some benign information, seemingly benign. Where is Mindigas today? Um, did you see him last Tuesday? Oh, he goes there every Tuesday? Oh, he missed that one time? Okay. And in so doing, they would map out the movements of the Lithuanian people. And what that did was that actually fundamentally destroyed, disintegrated the trust between people, between friends, between family members, because they didn't know if they were going to give up information that was going to incriminate them. And so they didn't just have um, 
feelings about the Soviets moving in, but they no longer had a collective that then they could leverage for collective action. And my argument, as far as social media is concerned, is not just that um, what happens on social media is an important discussion, but that we're missing a larger discussion often, at least I'm not hearing it, which is that we are, in many ways, allowing the same kind of social disintegration to happen, and we're not realizing it. We're passively endorsing it, if not full, wholeheartedly embracing it. What I mean by that? Many of you may know uh, Dr. Robert Putnam from Harvard. He's a political scientist who wrote a book about 20 years ago. Um, George, I, I bet you are very familiar with this, um, about the disintegration of our communities and how since the late 60s, early 70s, there has been a, a steep and steady decline in our, um, our participation in volunteer activities. That could be anything from club sports, uh, civic participation in party activities. It could be the PTA, unions, uh, religious activities. Across the board, people are participating in these things less. So it's not just a political problem. It's a fundamental society problem that people are not necessarily collecting in the way that they once did. And he attributes it to a few different factors. First, the growth of the suburbs. People moved further away from one another, so it took a little bit more work to actually have conversation in person. And sometimes those conversations, as you know, are sloppy. When you have different opinions from one another, you're going to butt heads. But when you are in a network where you're dependent upon one another, you get past that. You learn to, um, you learn to develop and exercise those empathy skills that enable you to respect difference while still being in the same, in the same team. Second, he also says that technology, and specifically TV, this was back in 2000, had a big impact on our, um, our participation in volunteer activities because we would come home and watch TV instead of going out and playing baseball. And, and in his uh, example, he talks about bowling leagues. And third um, is a generational shift toward hyper-individualism, which is the same thing, this, this movement away from uh, a feeling of responsibility to the collective and more towards the individual. You see things like slogans that are less do your duty for your country and more be all that you can be. You see a discussion of when there's a problem in the school district, oh, how is that going to affect our kids? Instead of our kids meaning the community's kids, you mean your own biological kids. So it, de it determines the degree to which you pitch in and you try to make things better versus moving into a different school district. So these things have a measurable impact on the, on the strength of our community ties. And without those collectives, it's really hard to make any kind of social movement or social change. Now, people may argue that it's different in the age of the internet, right? We're assembling online. My, my claim is that that is fundamentally not true. We are able to, uh, we are able to assemble, perhaps, in the blink of an eye, very quickly. But attention is not commitment. It is not dedication. Things are hard. And in fact, um, uh, one of the biggest public health considerations now is that because we have these personal devices on us at all times, we are more and more enclosed in our own personal spaces. We are less and less likely to have in-person interactions. 
And they're seeing that, generational researchers are seeing that, especially with the youngest generation, with what Gene uh, Twenge, an MIT professor, calls um, the iGen, which is the generation that uh, does not know life without the internet. That they perhaps are much more vocal on social issues, but they're much less likely to participate in civic engagement activities. So when we're talking about saving democracy, if that has to do with civic participation, it absolutely needs, that's a conversation that needs to be had. In 2014, this generation was first able to vote in a midterm, and they were 33% less likely to show up than the boomer generation. It's not, uh, it's, it's not that in 2016 everything changed. There has been a heightened level of activity, but the the problem is that we are seeing long-term trends, and any little blip is not necessarily going to be enough to overcome that when we have fundamentally laid a structure for our societies that pull people away from empathetic and deep relationship where they have to disagree and still love one another and cooperate, and more towards a society where I'll do what I want. It's a spectator sport. Politics is interesting, but it's not for me. So my claim as to social media is that if to the degree to which we are less likely to have personal interactions, face-to-face -face interactions with other people, if that is responsible for having negative impacts on our democracy, then perhaps you know, there's something to be talked about there. We are now spending, on average, 10 hours and 39 minutes a day as adults, American adults, online. At least interacting with screens. That could be in the movies. It could be on your smartphone. That number is going up. That was over an hour more than the year prior. This, this statistic is from last year. So if we are seeking connection online and we're finding shallower connections there, our loneliness rates are going up, it's now considered a health epidemic, then we need to have a conversation, not just about what's happening on social media, but whether we're actually being wise with the tool that we have. We're getting smart but can we also get wise? Well, I want to thank uh, Cato and all of you for giving me the opportunity to come here. This is obviously a question that um, has been weighing heavily on my mind even before the 2016 election. I've been at Facebook now for seven years, and you know, when I first started here in DC doing digital work, Facebook hadn't even been created yet. Um, so this is a dramatic shift of things that has happened in a relatively short period of time, of, of 14, 15 years. I want to talk today about how we're addressing it, how we're trying to think about this, um, and how we're grappling with some of these questions. Um, you know, for us, there's, there's five main areas we're looking at. And we fundamentally believe at the end of the day that social media can be good for democracy and can encourage civic discourse. But we have to make sure that we're doing what we can to mitigate the risk and to be looking at the consequences that have, that have come out of, out of these platforms. Whether that's combating both foreign interference and also what's happening, potentially happening domestically when you look around the world. Uh, what we can be doing to be removing fake accounts. Much of the activity that we see on our platform and that we saw in 2016, particularly from the Russians or the Macedonians who were sharing fake news, they were using fake accounts 
to do that. They weren't using their authentic accounts. So the more that we can do there to be taking those down in a timely manner or even preventing them from being created in the first place gets us a long way. There's work we're trying to do on ads transparency and trying to make it more transparent about the ads that candidates, political parties, political action committees, and others are running online. We launched a tool last week, an archive, where you can see those ads, and they will be there for seven years, and I'll talk more about that. We're looking at what we can do around fake news, what we can be doing, and what we should be doing, in fact. And it's been interesting, even in just the, the year's time that we've been trying some of the different tactics that I'll talk about, um, what the, the impacts that those have had or have not had. Um, and finally, there's a lot of work we're trying to do on the civic engagement side, whether that's helping people to remind them to register to vote, know who's on their ballot, um, gain different perspectives in terms of where the parties or candidates stand on, stand on the issues, and even just reminding them that it's election day and to, to go and vote. And so when you go back to the first one I mentioned in, in combating foreign interference or looking for what bad actors might be, how they might be exploiting our platform, you actually have to look at the different areas of the platform. It's not enough to say, oh, we're going to combat foreign interference. You have to look at the ways they might be, what they might be doing. And we look at that in three buckets. We want to make sure people have the right information about the election. We want to make sure they feel safe expressing themselves and that they are motivated to participate and turn out. And so that means we're looking at everything from misinformation of people sharing, you know, things like Republicans vote Tuesday, Democrats vote Wednesday, or you can text to vote. And how do we make sure that's not on our platform? How do we make sure people aren't creating pages at the last minute or at any time that could be impersonating a candidate or political party trying to spread a message? Um, what are we doing in terms of one thing we see a lot of is people registering URLs such as NewYorkTimes.com and just transposing two letters um, and making a site look like it's the New York Times or CNN or BBC um, because those are trusted brands, um, but they're actually sharing news that is stuff they just made up. Um, on the safety side, we want to make sure people aren't bullied um, for sharing their political positions on the platform. But how do you define where is that line between just political speech and political discussion and bullying or harassment. I think that's a really hard, if I asked each one of you, you might have a different way that you would draw that line. Um, we want to make sure our platform isn't used to instigate offline violence. This is something we worked on a lot in the Kenyan elections last year. There's also just a lot of work, too, on account security, uh, making sure that folks are using our two-factor authentication and strong passwords um, to help make sure that their accounts aren't hacked or taken over um, by somebody they don't, that shouldn't. And on the turnout side, I mentioned those, those civic engagement products. Now, when we look at all of these, we've got to be looking at it of what can we do to even just prevent that behavior from happening in the first place? You know, we thought about when you look at, you know, the issue immediately after the election wasn't the Russians or anything. It was about fake news sites from Macedonia and people doing it to make money. And so one of the things we, we did is reduce the reach of sites, of URLs, where if you clicked on them, they were going to a page that was mostly ads. So we're trying to reduce the economic incentives of them even trying to share this content on the platform. We're doing what we can to try to monitor, to potentially identify activity. 
One of the things that happened in the Alabama special election in December is we were looking for content that was getting a lot of reach in the US but came from pages where admins were from another country. And we found another handful of URL of websites from Macedonia that we were able to, to black hole and make sure people couldn't share on the platform. And that came from those monitoring efforts. We're looking at what we can do to be better on enforcement. I have to be honest, this is probably one of the trickiest areas of and the fascinating questions that are coming up of how we should be handling some of these issues, and even if they are issues, and trying to identify them. Um, and how do we do that in a quick way, but also in a way so that we are thinking about the unintended consequences, that we are trying to be thoughtful in making these decisions and thinking about how they won't just impact um, democracy here in the United States, but how it will impact the entire, the entire world. Um, and then we do a lot of research. Um, we start for every election internationally. We start working about a year and a half, two years out, um, of going and doing research in countries to identify what election integrity risks they may see and also how they may civically, civically engage. Um, and so with all of the different products that we're working on, those are some of the things that we're trying to, we're trying to do to tackle each of these, each of these different, different problems. I want to make sure I could keep going on for a long time about a lot of the different stuff we're doing, and I'm happy to, happy to answer questions. But I will say this just to close. These are the conversations that we want to be having. Everyone up here has made incredibly valid points and questions and criticisms of our platform. And these are the th conversations that we need to be having because you know, you don't necessarily also just want Facebook making one decision, Google making another decision, Twitter making another decision too. These are conversations we have to be having collectively to be thinking about what are the right ways that we should be handling this. Where is regulation the right answer versus com companies like ours making those decisions? And so I just want to say I, I hope we do more of this. I hope we keep having these. And again, I just really appreciate you letting me to be here. All right. Uh, thanks to everyone. So we have a lot of big stuff on the table. I think everybody did a good job of getting the big issues out. Um, and I'm going to try to narrow things a little bit because we have, I mean, I think what usefully happens when you put the big issues on the table is that in each of these remarks, you have these big tensions, right? Katie's talking about how do we crack down on bullying without cracking down on speech. Alex is talking about, you know, how do we, you know, remove the kind of inherent shallowness of online interaction without, you know, turning away from online interaction entirely. Uh, you know, George was saying that we should be sober and reflective and not rush into anything, but hypothetically, if, you know, let's say the FSB was trying to meddle in an election, or hypothetically, if there was a Rohingya genocide going on, you would want to act quickly and rashly. Um, Ned, I heard you arguing pretty forcefully that, you know, rule by algorithm can be worse than a tyrannical dictatorship, and yet also we want to make sure the algorithms don't crack down on insurgent movements like Brexit and Trump. So. Everybody has these very dynamic tensions that are right at the heart of what you're saying, and that's to be expected. But I guess one thing that could, might narrow it a little bit is to say, like, what's one thing that you can unambiguously get behind that could, that could help right away tomorrow that, could, that we don't have to wait for Congress to do, that we don't have to wait for the FEC to do? What's something that you think the platforms can do the, collect, the, the society can do collectively or culturally that you would be unambiguously ready to 
get on the ground with. And actually, if you want to do, you know, the, the political ad stuff, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of, that's not tomorrow, that's, you know, yesterday, but I think it's worth. Yeah, I think, well, I, you know, the ads transparency stuff, we announced it back in October. Um, and so it actually took us a little while to, to not only just build it, but also to think through how, who we wanted to, how we wanted to define what a political, and then later on when we added issue, how we wanted to define what a political or, or issue ad is. And so. And this is Facebook flagging political or issue ads on Facebook. Correct. And when requiring the advertiser to go through an authorizations process and then add the paid for by disclaimer, and then those ads go, go into an archive. And so that was something that we felt it was important to do before there was even any legislation, uh, whether the Honest Ads Ads Packs. Honest Ads Act passes, <laughs> or the FEC, you know, takes action. Now, depending upon where those end up going and how, where the FEC rulemaking goes, we may have to adjust our product depending upon where that happens. But we think we think the transparency part is the thing that we're we're trying to do more of and keep looking at to at least help in the short right away. Mm -hmm. So that's something that can be done and has been done. Do you guys have you know something that you would? get behind as something we can do right now? One thing that I would like to see, um, this relates to Twitter more than Facebook, but I have been personally confused by Twitter's rules as to what constitutes hate speech that will get people banned, because there does seem to be uh, an, an arbitrary element to it. Uh, some uh, seems rather capricious at times. There are people who are banned for things that I've find abhorrent but don't seem to be in violation of their rules and there are other uh, accounts that have really shouldn't have any place there that remain untouched and a little bit of clarity as to how these decisions are made um, would be would be useful at least from the perspective of someone trying to analyze it from the outside and perhaps from users themselves to to have a better idea as to how one should uh, behave online. Mm -hmm. I think that's really fair. And I think the thing to think about, too, is it's not just clarity on what our standards are, which is something we've been attempting to, to do more of, but your point, too, of how the decisions are made um, and how the conversations that are happening within companies, whether it's ours or Twitter, um, of getting to those points and how these policies evolve. Mm -hmm. Because they, they do evolve. and. You know, these are they're really long, and, and how do we help make sure people understand that, mm -hmm. and how we're and how we're getting to it? So I think it's important to look at look at both parts of that. Well, one thing I, I see as kind of a, a tension within that is you know, people want clarity and transparency, but there's also a, you know a lot of platforms want to keep a light touch and don't want to be you know you were saying who controls the controllers, right? So one question is how can a platform go out and affirmatively say, we are people making these value distinctions. This is what we consider hate speech. This is what we don't, while maintaining a, a, the, the appearance of neutrality. Welcome to democracy. I don't, think <laughs> I don't think there's an easy way to get to that. I, I think I would reiterate what George said. You know, there's got to be a lot more transparency about how rules are made, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. But I got to tell you, even at that point, I'm, I'm very hesitant to let certain you know, private companies decide what free speech is. Um, you know, as, you, as, as Alex was pointing out, if we're spending up to almost 11 hours on our screens, um, I might be at 12 hours, I don't know. Um, what, what is the internet but a public forum, a public space? And if we're allowing certain people to decide what they have decided internally, 
what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, I think it calls into question, again, who are the arbiters of free speech? So I think a first step, again, before any of this would be more transparency. Um, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day, obviously with the amazing implosion of Roseanne uh, on, on Twitter. You know, certain people are on Twitter that shouldn't be on Twitter, and there's certain consequences for what Roseanne did, but, you know, you look at Keith Olbermann's Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. They didn't, Twitter didn't ban her, it's worth noting. No, it didn't, um, yeah. exactly. But yeah. there's certain people going back, you know, there were certain people that had been banned for saying certain things, yeah. and then you look at Wanda Sykes and Keith Olbermann, and you're like... Yeah. And Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, although I don't think he's used mother effort before on, on Twitter. No, but I'm... So th this brings up this, there is yeah. always a double standard. Right, where are you going to find the right... And again, it comes down to then who makes those decisions. Mm -hmm. Is it the duly elected representatives of the American people, or is it private companies? And I think that's the tension that I think we're really gonna, it's, it's accelerating very quickly. I can guarantee you hearing some of Kevin McCarthy's comments the other day, should Republicans keep the majority in the House and, and should he become Speaker? I think there's gonna be some very rapid movement on some things, probably in the first six months of next year. Well, and I think, so then from a civil libertarian point of view, you get to the question of, do these companies have First, first Amendment rights? Exactly. You've got to, where is the tension? Where, where do you find the right line? I think that's what we're really starting to struggle with is where, where do you draw the line? Where, where do certain freedoms start and stop? I mean, it, it, there's, there's obviously not unlimited freedom to go into a theater and yell fire. At the same time, you know, we, in, in democracies, and again, it goes back, you know, democracies are messy. I think there's got to be, there's got to be something where we say there has to be as much free speech as possible, but no more than not possible. Right. Yeah, yeah if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> In the spirit of transparency, too. So Ned and I and several others have been working on a, a project uh, of social media practitioners across both sides of the aisle um, in conjunction with the Democracy Fund and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. And we've been trying to come up with principles that all of us can agree to. Um, and so this gets back to your original question of like, is there something that we can unambiguously agree to? Mm -hmm. And it also goes back to the spirit of dialogue mm -hmm. and making sure that we're all on the same page, having these conversations because it is nuanced. And one of the things that came up that, that we ended up all agreeing to, um, although we're not completely finished with this project, it's ongoing. Close to it. Close to it. <laughs> is that uh, we would like there to be a, a working group, essentially, with many different parties um, from various interests to be able to have these conversations um, and to acknowledge that transparency is an issue, yeah. that uh, having open and honest dialogue about it, too, knowing that not every single decision that is made is going to be a perfect one because there's always going to be dissent, but that that may be some place where we can start, is continuing and encouraging cross-party dialogue. Yeah. Yep. It, it just comes down to transparency. Who are, who's doing what? Who's paying for what? Where are they coming from? Um, and, and I would say, you know, massive and 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 dramatic transparency. Yeah, and I actually, I mean, I have some of the principles that were unanimously endorsed from that project, and it was really interesting which ones. There were 22 items that were unanimously endorsed by everyone, and there were a lot more than that that were not. And so I think it's interesting, I think it's equally interesting which ones people were not comfortable with and which ones they were, because it seems, on the face of it, you know, 
citizens should have the right to view their personal data, social media practitioners should treat social media content created by minors as off limits. These, these are all the un unanimously adopted ones and they all sound. Well, the one that was interesting yeah. is that there was unanimous from right and left, uh, obviously watching what's taking place in Europe, the right to be forgotten. That was interesting, because yeah. I would think that people would have a problem with that, that, that it's, yeah. That, and and do, you, do you have a sense of why that, that was okay with everyone? Because it is controversial in the First Amendment context. The yeah. right to be forgotten, do you want to explain what that is? Uh, as best I can, um, and, and feel free anybody to correct me as, as best I understand this, because I'm still catching up to speed on some of this stuff, but the, the, the fact that who owns the data, whose data is, you know, who owns the data? Is it the individual? Uh, or is it the various entities that has, you know, that have that the data has been shared on, and the ability and the right to be forgotten, the right to have all that data removed from those various platforms? And again, I think it goes back to a basic human individual right. That's why I said yes because it's mine. Right. This Privacy. is all mine. And I, and I think the thing, the interesting debate, and I cut it out of my opening comments, but I think it's worth having is how are we viewed as? How are we viewed by these various companies? How are we viewed online? Are we viewed as Consumers, or are we viewed as human beings and, and citizens? And I think there is a difference in how we're viewed and how what expectations are, mm -hmm. depending on how we're viewed and defined by social media and tech companies. And I think where Europe has come down, interestingly, has been more towards human beings and citizens, mm -hmm. and where we have been right now, currently in the United States, I think there's very interesting conversations taking place, place seeing what Europe has done. We've been viewed more as just pure consumers. Right. And so I think that's the debate moving forward of, Human rights. Yeah. yeah, well, and a lot of European countries have human rights in their constitution, and we do not. So um, I think that, you know, one question that I found interesting that did not pass, and this I wanted to sort of read, because as, as I was saying, I think it's interesting what people did support and what they didn't. And it seems like a lot of what we're saying is kind of a, a, a larger cultural shift in how we think about stuff, more so than specific regulation. So this, this was the wording of this Principles. Social media platforms should recognize their role in the pull away from collectivity. While for-profit corporations, they have also become a prominent locus of community development and should acknowledge their unique impact on and therefore responsibility to the common good. Uh, it goes on in that vein for a couple more sentences. Half support, half opposition. So do, could you speak to why something like that would be controversial? That seems like something that everyone could kind of get behind. I think I voted for that. But Mark would, Mark would actually know. Yeah, I feel like I did vote. I mean, it is. I think there is. The, the, the thing that concerns me a little bit is, goes back to a deeper question, are people doing what they should do or do, are people doing what they can do? Mm -hmm. And I think that there are, are, there are responsibilities that various entities, companies, organizations have uh, to be responsible corporate citizens. And so I, I actually do agree mm -hmm. with that statement. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I would as well, um, so I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> not yeah. giving the other point here, yeah. but um, I think that it's important to acknowledge the context and the history that we come from, mm -hmm. um, and also that, that we're not independent actors as much as we wish we were. Mm -hmm. So there are certain things that wield influence, social pressure being one, being on Facebook is a thing. That's where a lot of human interaction takes place now. So is it fair to say that I can just turn it off completely. A lot of people do, but there are a lot of people who would say that you know that's that's not a hundred percent an option either. That's an answer, though. I mean, I've had this conversation with with friends who are like, "Well, just leave everything." I love. I mm -hmm. to be fair, I, I'm a big practitioner of Twitter. Do some Instagram, do some Facebook, but Twitter's my thing. Love it. And we've had this debate. Like, do you just 
withdraw it completely. I'm like, no, because then you, you literally are ostracizing yourself, self-ostracizing from a very real part of society because of everything that's now taking place online on the internet. And so I don't think, I don't think that's a solution. I, and I, I look at that and go, I think that's the wrong right. approach, wrong solution that we have to actually engage in this in debate. And I think that's the thing that we're trying to figure out too. How can we actually have, again, democracy being messy, these, these jostling, you know, we, we bump into each other in our disagreements. How are we going to actually solve these things offline and online? Because if we can't, I mean, then you do call into question, what is the, the future of our democracy? Are we going to be a healthy democracy moving forward? This is something we actually have to figure out where we realize in a pluralistic society, we're going to have disagreements. I would, I would say um, among all of us up here, there's probably a couple things we agree on, and most of it we probably don't. Uh, at the same time, respecting each other as individuals and saying, I am going to respectfully disagree with you, and how does that, what does that look like in the public arena, which is both offline and online? Well, I think in practice it doesn't look like I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. Right. So then, so <laughs> then I say that too as someone who gets a little chippy on Twitter, <laughs> you know? Right. So then, so then it does seem that at some point the platforms do have to step in and say, hey, that's abuse. We're putting you in the timeout box. Right? I mean, there no, has no, to be some I'm just role saying, for so, that. I'll make this quick, I don't want to hawk too much time, but you know, I had to deal with the alt-right. I'm on the board of the American Conservative Union. We put on CPAC. Um, somehow Milo got invited to CPAC. I was adamantly opposed to it. I did not think anybody that associated with the alt-right should have a platform at CPAC. Um, and so, you know, knowing that George just wrote a book on it, I thought it was fascinating. I was talking a little bit with George beforehand that I think there are certain lines where you can say, alt-right is nothing but the new form of, of white nationalism, white supremacy, whatever you want to call it. At the same time, understanding that's inflammatory, and I think you would agree, we'd probably agree 99.9% .9 of the American people, I hope, would agree that that's unacceptable. At the same time, is really being pro-life that inflammatory? Yeah. And so it's one of those things where you actually have to draw the line and say, yeah, there are certain things where I completely agree about some of this absurd and ridiculous and abhorrent behavior of the alt-right. At the same time, there is a very significant percentage of us, myself included, very strongly pro-life. And so... You know, when you see Twitter and some of these guys kind of maybe damping down on some of those problems, it, it, it's one of those things, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line and how? I mean, I think the, th the mechanism you brought up is you, you sort of alluded to, like, public opinion. 99% support this, 50% support this. Is, is that something that we're comfortable with as, as a weather vane for how we draw those lines, or are we comfortable more with just saying... Then you no fall into pure democracy, and then it's the, the tyranny of the majority, and then all of a sudden, you know, the minority doesn't have a voice. Right. So so what is a better answer? <laughs> George. <laughs> oh, um, I would probably describe myself as, as largely a free speech purist when it comes to ideas. Um, and so I think that um, certain radical views should be not necessarily banned as long as they don't cross that line into harassment because I think that is an easier... Yeah. Uh, that's an, an easier... Thing to, to manage then you know certain I ideologies are out of bounds and I think that that alone would go a long way to you know stopping things like the alt-right which grew not so much because it was pushing an ideological agenda but its use of things like trolling and online harassment which I think one can reasonably um, attack from um, you know, a platform's perspective without you know, raising some of the trickier questions that you were implying. And yet, just to, so Milo was banned from Twitter for harassment, mm -hmm. but he was not banned from CPAC for harassment. He was banned from CPAC for expressing a point of view. Which is, which is 
to be clear, one of my arguments back to them that the reason he was uninvited was over something, again, that 99.99% of people found abhorrent. And I thought we missed having a real rigorous debate. And again, this is why it, like, we actually in democracy have to figure out how we can have rigorous debates without some things being silenced. Mm -hmm. And I felt that some of that debate, we were silenced because we didn't have that honest debate about why Milo shouldn't be invited. Not for this one. Yeah, it wasn't for him. pedophile or pedestry or any of that. It's because he is associated. I said, if he looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, he's a damn duck. And that, that is, to, to put a point on it, you acting as a gatekeeper, or, or the people who make that decision acting well, I, as a gatekeeper. Last thing, I think part of what would be helpful in this whole dialogue, and I actually brought this up, and I think it made the principal list, we actually have to learn how to self-police ourselves inside of movements. And I thought this is where the conservative movement could actually have and take a stand, much like Buckley did back in the day with the John Birch Society. We can mm -hmm. have that conversation about the alt-right and say, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, we have a big tent, but that, those pegs and that edge of that tent end right here, and alt-right is not inside those pegs in that tent. National Review tried to do it in 2016. It didn't work. Yeah, but that's a whole other conversation. Well, and you see this in, we've, had, we've seen this, I, um, there was something I read earlier this week or, or last week of a study of looking at when, you know, politicians self-police on their own, like, Facebook page uh, in terms of comments and, and impose a, some self-policing in terms of the, the language that they're going to allow or not allow. Um, they actually end up having a more productive dialogue than just letting it all... Self-policing by whom? By... Well, by, so if, if I'm a politician, I've got my Facebook page and I do a post and people are commenting on it, if somebody's harassing somebody else, stepping in and stopping it. Moderating or it about Moderating it, yeah. yeah. And, and, and doing some more of that both, I think it's both self-policing on ourselves, but also calling things out when we think that they might be wrong or going over, going over the line. Because I think the trend of, of our, our conversation here is showing that like, we don't necessarily, aren't, we're not gonna be able to draw the clear line and be like, all right, we're done. It's gonna have to be a constant debate. And we're even finding it too, like again, going back to the ads transparency stuff of how we define a political or issue ad, we caught Bush's baked beans. I was going to bring not, that up. <laughs> that's not a political ad, or you know, political ad. But we're having to like it is going to take us time to to find the right spot where this where this line is, yeah. and figuring out what works and what what doesn't work. And I think a lot of times people want the nice clear answer right away, when in actuality it is going to be a debate and figuring out where that is to get there. Do you have? I want to get back to the self policing thing, but just I did want to ask when when. Bush's baked beans came into the dragnet and a polka band and all that stuff. Do you have a guess, and I don't want to do the gotcha thing because there will always be mistakes, but do you have a guess as to how, why that happened? Like, do you yeah. know? I think we, um, I mean, well, the Bush's baked bean one is because the name Bush, yeah. and we, we had that in there. I'm not sure on the polka band one I'd have to look, but we made a conscious decision here for initially enrolling this out that we wanted to be more broad in terms of being transparent for people to see things and make decisions on their own, also make decisions on their own, if they're political or issue, and then start to narrow it down versus starting narrow and go out. Now, people are gonna disagree with us on that decision. I think some people probably would have preferred we stayed very narrow and then, and then went out. But in the spirit of transparency, we felt broader was better. Mm -hmm. and, and can you speak to how Facebook or other platforms can empower community moderators to moderate themselves rather than doing it top down and, and um, maybe how that affects practitioners? I think that's a really hard question. It, all these are hard questions. <laughs> I think it's an interesting question that we're trying to do some research on and, and figure out. Um, 
you know, you even look at some of the initial work we did on fake news and trying to show a big red disputed flag if a fact checker had marked it as false, actually ended up causing people to believe it even more. Yeah. Um, you know, it's there's this is not as easy as just oh let's show people the other side and they're gonna all of a sudden have have a civil conversation on that. And so there's a lot of research that that we're putting into it and we're trying to work with external folks too of, of looking at where can you have these great productive conversations between two sides where you can respect one another and find those find those commonalities. Yep. Um, do you guys see it in your work doing online organizing, the, the kind of the ways that you can either self-police or set norms sort of bottom up? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. It's hard when you achieve scale because you get so many trolls. Mm -hmm. So it's just very difficult to um, to be the one responsible. You know, I, from from the politicians page, for example, it's hard to be the one responsible for going through all the comments and all the mentions because mm -hmm. they come in fast and furious, many dozens a minute. Um, I, what I would say, though, is that importantly, the polarization that we're seeing that are, is largely responsible for a lot of these mm -hmm. comments is not just on social media, it's within our, our neighborhoods. So it's not necessarily directly caused by social media. I mean, my, my argument earlier was that perhaps our like, pulling away from in-person interactions is causing us to exercise that like empathy, empathic conversation skill less. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, when we get onto social media, we say things that are a little bit more um, acerbic. But uh, as far as social media being the cause of this, I, yeah, I, I'm not, the jury's out. Um, and as far as other people within the community stepping in as, mon as moderators, I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. I, I think people have to want to do that. And yeah. how do you tell them to want to do that? Mm -hmm. And there are tools that can be used. I mean, I just know from spending time at Reddit, Reddit has always been very decentralized and always every, every subreddit has been very heavily moderated by individual kind of volunteer operators. And one thing they've done is just give AI tools to the moderators to say these are things that can be elevated as probable mm -hmm. troll activity. So you're not manually combing through it. And in, that can happen at the New York Times comment section or anywhere. Um, do we think that, you know, I, I, I want to talk about shutdowns because that's something that's happening not in the US, but, you know, Papua New Guinea. Guinea. Yeah. Papua New Guinea just announced that they're going to shut down Facebook for a month entirely. And some people cheered and said, yeah, let's try shutting down Facebook because it's inflaming tensions like analogous to the Sri Lanka situation or to the, uh, to the Myanmar situation. On the other hand, it appears that it might be just a attempt by the government to crack down on political opposition that's happening on Facebook. So do we have anything to say about shutdowns? Can we imagine a situation in which a shutdown or a, you know, let's 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 put it on hold until we can figure out what the hell's going on? Is there any situation that we can imagine anything like that being productive or I would I would certainly hope not. I mean, because then I think you call into question, again, it it's calls into question the, the freedom of speech and people's ability to communicate. I, I thought Alex made a really interesting point, because we've had this debate back and forth. We even had this debate on the panel up in, uh, in, in Chicago in November of, mm -hmm. 
is social media ruining democracy by, you know, is it really, is it, is it the cause of this polarizing? I'm like, no, I think these, these, I think over the last however many decades, you know, are we losing a commonality among who we are as a people? And I think what social media has allowed us to do is kind of find that everybody gets their own little microphone uh, to announce to the world what they believe and feel, which wasn't the case in the past. But no, and it, it's, it goes back to the whole thing of like when people are talking about stepping completely away from Facebook and Twitter, I think that's the wrong response as I think shutdowns are, is the wrong response. I just think we're in a time period where there's going to be a messy kind of figuring out all of this and how it works, but I have a hard time accepting when you completely shut down things that that's the right approach. So the interesting tension there, though, is you mentioned in your opening remarks about us working with, let's say, the Indian government and other governments. The interesting tension there is they're the ones that have the power to shut us down. Mm -hmm. And so where do we make decisions where we want to make sure we're giving more people voice, but where do we also want to make sure that the government isn't trying to use it to also stifle other opposition and potentially getting us into the, and, and then threatening us with shutdown if we don't take that, that action. And so I'd be curious, to the, it's just, it's a very interesting tension because for us, you know, commercial things aside, we want to stay up because we believe that that will give more people an opportunity to have that voice and to participate. But that may, that, then you got to find that balance, though, with that government that's asking you to do something or else they're shutting you down. Yeah. And then is it truly freedom of speech? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, not every government treats Facebook with the freedom that the U.S. government does. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we're going to move to Q&A portion. Um, I'm going to read these things, and then we're going to get going. Please wait to be called on. <laughs> wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear your question. Announce your name and affiliation, however you want to interpret that word. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So we have a question here. If we can get the microphone. Right down here. Good, as instructed. Afternoon, Carl Zabo with NetChoice. Uh, the Wall Street Journal announced today that there's a new website called Petsbee, which is only for pets. So if you act like a human, you get kicked off. <laughs> and uh, th that's, that's content moderation at its forefront. I've actually written two op-eds in the Daily Caller on this issue over the past week. And looking at it from a libertarian view, which we're in the heart of Cato, and Cato's, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, David, uh, or sorry, Robert Levy had a great article on this in 2016 about libertarianism and the right to discriminate. And how do we balance our libertarian views and policies and not get into the politics by advocating that private businesses must do or must not do something that they may not feel is best for their consumers, users, or for their business? Okay, I think. Uh, a lot of people could take that. The question is, how do we? But do you mean the government or just as a society? No, uh, libertarian advocates. Libertarian advocates. Okay. Because I do think there's a distinction. Just to add to your question, between what the government compels companies to do and what advocates request that the company do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just to get the ball rolling. It doesn't seem to me that there's a First Amendment concern with a site that wants people to mimic their pets. Like, that seems like a weird thing that a company can be allowed to do. That floats your boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that floats your boat. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you could take this a lot of different ways, too. Like, even on Facebook, you know, we require real name, you know, real name 
to use your real name on, on profiles and you can't, you know, I can't be Mickey Mouse um, on a profile, but I can do it on, I can do it on a page and, and I can have that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the interesting areas there potentially is at this, the scale question. Um, you know, if, if you want to pretend to be a pet and you want to do that, you can do that. But there's a lot of other sites you can go to if you want to have other, other types of other types of interactions. Um, I think the big questions come when companies like ours and others get to a scale where everybody, where you have a lot of people there. Um, there's different norms that people are wanting, and it, it's a very fair question because it's a very hard one to. I think it's a very hard one to balance. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, just to throw into the mix, there are you know, times when, like you say, 99.9% of people would appreciate a crackdown on something. It's just a question of what, what is that time? What is that time? Yeah. Um, we have a question right here at the end of the, yeah, right there. Thank you. Janice Walt Grenadier, American Legal News. Um, my question is, why is Main Street Media not um, basically talking more about our judges and the corruption in our courts? and that our judges police themselves. We can't get a fair trial to purchase by breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a weekend getaway. And when you try to reach out to a reporter in order to, to tell the story, it's everyone's petrified to admit what's really going on in our courts or in our jails and report on it. OK. I mean, I guess I'll take that one, because that I'm the only one from the media. Um, I don't know why everyone is afraid to talk about what's really going on. I don't take that to be the case. Yeah, question right here. My name is Quinby Wilcox. I'm with Global Expats. And thank you for this question, because mine goes into this as well. I've been working for a decade on violence against women as human rights violations. And we are having a horrible problem in the courts in for domestic violence victims, uh, sexually and physically abused children are being handed over to the abusers at a rate of 70%. And I have been trying to get the, the news media, this is in Europe, I work globally. We have 7 million Americans living abroad and people are coming to me for, with this problem all over the world. And we can't get the media to do it. All, there's all sorts of um, moms are going on to Facebook. They have Facebook pages there. There's campaigns. I'm up on Capitol Hill at the State Department, at the White House. All of the experts know about me. All of them know about my research, which really gets into the American democracy, going back to the Puritan movement. The yeah, revolution. I actually do think I have a way that we can address this with regard to social media. So you're talking about violence against women and trafficking stuff. There, there was recently uh, the FOSTA-SESTA Act that, um, that essentially, in order to prevent sex trafficking online, basically forced Backpage and a lot of these sites to shut down. And that was, I think, the closest we've come to a frontier of First Amendment-adjacent regulation that we've seen. That, that Congress passed a law that said, if you are hosting this kind of thing on your site, you have to shut down, and you know Craigslist took a big hit. Do we on this panel have sort of civil libertarian concerns about that, or is sex trafficking the kind of thing where you say, you know what, this is a grave enough risk that it's worth taking the hit? Yeah, I don't think there's a debate on that. There is. I mean, oh, I'm, no, I'm just saying if there's if there really are sites that are pushing. Well, the issue is, just to explain it a little further, the issue is not that the site itself is advocating for sex trafficking. Oh, but it's, used, it's being used for that. Right. Yeah. 
And if it's been proved that it is being used for that, then you know, I think you have you have grounds to be able to shut that down. That'd be my initial take. Interesting. But I mean, yeah, Facebook's it. been used for all kinds of horrible things. Yeah, I know. At some point, you got to decide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, does it does it meet community standards? And granted, those there's a wide spectrum of what that right. applies to, but I think that we can. Right. Well, and, yeah. that's, it, and I think that's one of the things that we are constantly trying to get better at is how do we define these things quickly to be able to to be able to take action on them at the scale that we're that we're operating on, um, and also making sure you're taking action in in the right in the right way. Well, because I think most people can agree that it's better for the platform to do it than for the government to do it for them in most cases. Mm -hmm. yeah. On the aisle there, blue tie. Hi, uh, my name is Justin Margolis, the government of Quebec. Uh, so I'd like to think outside of our borders. Well, first let me just say it's nice to see a young panel, and I hope that when legislators do attack this issue that they consult with young people and uh, that will change a lot of the debate. But my question is, seeing outside of the United States, you have more languages than Facebook could ever monitor in. How do you respect local laws, for example, where hate speech could be banned, where it's not banned under the First Amendment, but yet a Holocaust denial, for example, in Germany yeah. would be banned? So how do you jungle or juggle this being an American-based companies with servers in the United States, having users around the world and local laws varying? So one way that we've tackled that is geo-blocking. So for instance, in Germany, if somebody puts up a post um, denying the Holocaust. Um, we'll geoblock it so it's not seen in Germany, but can be seen outside, outside of that country. Um, that's just one way that we have, we have been looking at it, but it is, um, it is difficult and something we're trying to figure out, because I think we initially wanted to have global standards, but there's not global standards. What's acceptable in Brazil is different than what's acceptable in the, in the Middle East versus what's acceptable in Canada or the, or the Philippines. And the other interesting thing, too, in trying to tackle this is there are differences of what the inside the people inside the country feel is OK and acceptable versus what other countries and other societies might deem is OK or acceptable. And which one should we be listening to? And which one should we, how should we be finding that balance? Because there are definite pros and cons to each approach. Um, and yeah, it's just and, it, and it's just not a not an easy answer. Mm -hmm. um, in the middle there. Hi, um, I'm Hannah. I'm an intern here at Cato. So my question was going back to the earlier discussion on how Facebook and how other social media companies suppressed conservative. Um, new stories or conservative speech during the 2016 election. How do you think we should hold these companies, these social media companies accountable for that? And do you think that there should be consequences for these companies, for example, like the government getting involved? I think it's gotten to the point where just listening to some of the conversations that are taking place, again, I'd point you to uh, a clip of, of Kevin McCarthy speaking, I believe it was last week, about real belief that conservative voices are being suppressed on social media. This isn't some random member of Congress. He's the majority leader who is well positioned if Republicans take the, the, keep the House to be Speaker. And so I think at some point people, um, elected re representatives are saying, okay, it, it's almost like they feel like they've given enough time for social media companies to figure this one out. 
I think they've still got strong questions about it, and I think they're, like I said earlier, I think they're going to take a pretty aggressive approach after the first of the year in basically saying, okay, if you can't police yourselves, there is going to have to be. And I think that's one of the things, too, that I think in kind of comes back to all society and human nature. If you can't police yourself, you're going to get policed by somebody else. And I think that's where it's gotten to if, if and I'm not saying it's easy to be clear about Facebook and Twitter, but at the same time, I think there's certain, there certain things where we have to have that debate about who really does control the internet, who, who are the protectors and defenders and guardians of free speech. I think there's been enough opportunity and enough time for people to figure it out, and if they can't figure it out, I think ultimately becomes, yeah, I do think you're going to see some of that take place. I, to what level, I don't know, to be clear. Um, just to sort of bring this to kind of a social science perspective, however, I would note that before we, you know, want to get the government involved in these sorts of things, we should reasonably consider how much this matters from a real-world perspective. That is, would, were there people who would have voted for Trump had they seen one more conservative ad in their Facebook feed? Whatever that number is, it is almost assuredly too marginal to matter. I mean, yes, we should care about these questions of fairness, but do we really want to get the, have the government going down these, these various rabbit holes for things that ultimately are, in my view, and I think that there is enough uh, data on this, in inconsequential in the big picture. So I think we should try to put these things in perspective as well as we're thinking about these issues. Yeah, but my concern is this. I, what is, is Google 75% of search engine, something like that, yeah. something in that range? I think their market share is continuing to increase yeah. uh, at a certain point. And I had this thought when I, I went to Google's Political Innovation Summit right after the 2012 elections. It was January 2013. Was in the was sitting there in the crowd. It was fascinating, actually. Um, and I just I, it, the, the the thought occurred to me back then. These these companies like Google are going to have the ability to, um, in many ways, I think in the future, manipulate elections based off what people see, what they don't see, how they make decisions. And that, to me, is a concern. And, and while George, I think, has a valid point, because I, I think some of this hullabaloo about some of the Facebook ads is overblown, I'm worried about trends that are being set for the future and how things tend to accelerate. And are we going down a path where we actually have to have that conversation now, where 20 years from now we go, wish I'd had that conversation about who's controlling the internet, the freedom of speech, free, free, free expression in a public forum, which is the internet. I just wanted, there's, as, as a Republican, who is at Facebook um, and has been for, for a while. Uh, uh, just a couple of things, because we could have a whole panel just on, the, on this topic. I think there's a couple of different things to be unpacking as well in terms of where people might be seeing potential bias. One of them is in our community standards and what we're allowing on the content on the, on the platform, which has been a big part of the debate, big part of the debate here and some of the decisions that we've made as a platform of what we want what we'll allow and not allow that some people, some people disagree with. There's the decisions, they are the decisions on the algorithms in terms of the types of you know, headlines and, and content um, of what's getting reach and not. And a decision that we made earlier this year around showing people more content from their friends and family versus pages because just the pure amount of content that has appeared on Facebook now in the last couple of years has just skyrocketed. And I can make you all sit here all day, every day, and you wouldn't be able to see all of the content that you're eligible, eligible for your, yourself in your feed. So I think that's another conversation to be having, too, um, around you know, 
and people initially, they, you know, you self-select what you see in your feed, but then what you see from that, everybody has different preferences in terms of what they want to see and not see, and I think that's a totally valid debate. But I'll just end with this. There's no company I would rather be at as a tech company as a Republican. I've been in numerous conversations with Mark, and there were numerous times where we could have, for instance, pulled out and not gone to the Republican convention when there was pressure to not go there when President Trump was, was um, the nominee. We have been at CPAC for the last couple of years, which um, can be con is controversial. Um, but it is something that Mark feels strongly about making sure that we are a platform for all voices and a variety of voices. And he is very committed of making sure that there are in rooms when decisions are being made that there are different that there are differing ideological backgrounds and racial backgrounds and gender backgrounds on all of this. And so I just want to say, and I know this is my own personal opinion, but and we have a lot of a long way to go, but it is something that we are taking very seriously, and I personally feel it as a Republican at the company. One more thing, I was, I was laughing actually, my comms director, he decided to swing by, hey Mike. Uh, we were laughing the other day about, wouldn't it be funny if we could get Facebook and some of these guys in Silicon Valley, not saying the weather in Kansas is great, but get them out of Silicon Valley, get them into the flyover country, have them interacting and dealing with people that are not of the same mentality, same worldview. Um, especially, uh, you know, to, to give a different worldview, different perspective. I think that would be extremely healthy. Well, that's what Mark did last year. Yeah. He visited all different states that he had never been to No, I'm talking moving companies out. Oh, moving the entire company. Moving yeah. companies. No, that's totally Different fair. places, because I, I, different worldviews, different ways. I, it, it's funny to me, again, doing some of the TV and all, interacting with people who really haven't been yeah. outside the Acela corridor. Yeah. And saying there is a different worldview. There are different people out there, and they feel strongly about these views but you never interact with them, so you don't get it. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that would be healthy, I think. Yeah. If I could just add yeah, yeah. one small thing, it's that anything that leads toward assumption that social media is where all of our lives have to happen, I just want to <laughs> say, like, let's not do that. <laughs> let's, and, like, as, as far as, like, information dissemination, totally get it. That's where it happens a lot nowadays. But as much as I can um, encourage people, my fiancé is a pastor, and one of his favorite books is called TechWise, um, and he pulled this one quote out of it that says something to the effect of, um, we don't all have to be Amish, but we have to be a little more Amish than we think we should be. So, you know, pulling a little bit away from the things that we find ourselves falling into um, is always a healthy practice. Mm -hmm. And I will just put on the table, we don't have time to debate all these points, but I will say, as far as the, you know, fear about conservatives being squelched at Facebook, you know, one Trump supporter on the board is better than you're going to do at a lot of other companies. Also, I do think there is a lot of data that I've seen that is, um, suggests that there is not a you know, plot to stifle conservative speech and that, in fact, there might be as much or if not more bias on the other side, that there might be just a lot of fake news that is branded conservative, that is not true conservative stuff. There's a lot of different ways to look at the data. So I just wouldn't take it for granted that you know, Facebook is setting out to stifled diamond and silk speech. And then um, I also would just, there, there is a debate as far as what, what George was saying about the fact that this stuff doesn't matter. I think there are a lot, there's a lot of data to suggest that it does, that advertising matters, that Citizens United matters, all that stuff. So that's just to point out, again, it's a whole other panel, but it's just to point out that there is a social science debate on that stuff. Uh, we had one up there. And we should keep talking about that, because it's interesting. You see the study at Yale? Which How op-eds 
op-eds change people's minds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like, changes people's yeah, minds. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Sorry. Uh, Richard Rasmus. I'm an independent consultant. And I first occurred to me as you were speaking, Ned, but a couple of other um, similar comments is, you know, I, I think perhaps there's an assumption that Facebook today but others uh, have sort of a chokehold on uh, a market share um, and, and uh, an ability to speak. I, I, you know, you look back on, at one point, um, uh, newspapers or the three broadcast networks or AOL and Time Warner uh, and, you know, even Google, you know, tried to uh, compete uh, with Google Plus, which was a failure. And, you know, I don't think there's any inevitability that Facebook will, you know, uh, necessarily, you know, have a, an immortal uh, uh, lifetime. So as you think about, well, gee, or, you know, uh, um, the question of, of algorithms, you know, newspapers had what was in effect an algorithm. It was an editorial uh, perspective, as did the broadcast networks, as did AOL. Um, and so I wonder if some of the, the perspective that you articulated, Ned, in particular, it, it assumes that um, uh, that there's some inevitability to the permanence of, of some of these platforms. Uh, and my response back would be, I don't think there will be if we actually, everybody played by the same rules and there was actually real competition um, in, in how we're approaching this in, in you know, I think, I think there's an argument you made. You look back at the, the whole Ma Bell situation where AT&T controlled all the telephone lines and then uh, Western Electric built all the telephonic equipment. And, it, you know, it was, it was this v complete vertical integration that completely controlled everything. And when we're allowing companies to, to, to buy various entities, whether it's Instagram, whether it's YouTube and all that, and acquire and get all these, these integrations, I think we have to have the conversation. Are, have we allowed it to the point where there's not really competition that will allow some of these things to take place where things come and go. And I guess my argument back would be if we create a level playing field where everybody's playing by the same rules and there is true competition that allows upstarts to come on and really be able to compete, great, all for it. And, but I would say right now I don't think we have that dynamic based off what I'm seeing, based off the, the rules, the regulations, the laws, everything that's in place. I would argue we don't have true free market competition. And we have to, we have to examine that. And one thing to tip that question to the three of you, you know, the comparison to the newspapers and the, the TV networks of old is, as you say, that was editorial discretion. The, their algorithmic approach to should we print this or not was, does it meet our standards? Is it good? That is not a standard that social networks have used or have wanted to use in the past. And yet, we have seen a little bit more over the past few months of sort of, you know, Campbell Brown and Adam Masseri and people coming out and saying, well, we are putting our values forth. We are you know, acting a little bit more like a publisher than we have in the past. So I guess the question to you guys is, do, are we OK with moving a little bit more in the, question, in, the, in the direction of social networks acting a bit more like publishers in, that, in the sense of editorial discretion? I was going to say, if we're going to redefine them from moving from platforms to publishers, then it would go back to what I was talking about earlier. The rules change. <laughs> Once you're defined as a publisher of content, whether you know, you're TV, radio, whatever, a telecommunications company, the rules completely change. And that was my argument, my opening statements. Mm -hmm. I think social media tech giants have become that. 
Therefore, we have to re-examine how we define them and then the rules by which they play, because they're not playing by the same rules as everybody else. I think the big thing is that we may not want to use old definitions and old definitions of antitrust and thinking about how you allow competition with networks like ours and today. I think, I think it is regulations going to have to look different than just necessarily breaking us up. And because and, I think you can look at it in a couple of couple of different ways. For instance, Ben Thompson, if any of you read Stratechery, um, his column, he talks about how it should be more about like data portability. And that's how you can help have growth if you can like port your social network into a, in, into a new in a new platform or a new startup and you take your network with you. Um, that's different than the regulation of just being like, all right, Instagram, WhatsApp, you've got to spin off and go become your but own. Do they companies. have the ability to compete to be able to do that? <clears throat> what do you mean? I'm, I'm just saying, is the environment online on the internet because Google's controlling 75%? I mean, all these Look massive market happens. shares. Is there really the ability to compete for people to have data portability? I well, guess that's my big question. Well, I, look I'm at, not seeing it. Well, look at Meerkat. If any of you remember 2015, South by Southwest, Meerkat was like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. Part of the reason that it was growing super fast is that people, you could use Twitter, and you were importing your Twitter contacts into that, and that thing grew like crazy, and then Twitter was like, no, uh -huh. and shut that off. Mm -hmm. And it would have been interesting to see what if Twitter couldn't have shut that off? Mm -hmm. And what would have happened? Because then they were getting way out in front of the curve on live streaming beyond Twitter and, and yeah, us. Yeah, totally remember. Yeah, it was right? amazing. Right, on that. And so I think that's a great example of kind of thinking about, like, how, how, how can you be thinking about this to allow startups and what is the t right type of, re of regulation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, question right here. Hi, my name is <clears throat> my name is Jess Sadik. I'm with Memory, the Middle East Media Research Institute. Um, my question is regards to industry standards. There was some discussion about that, and um, specifically, there's a forum, the Global Counterterrorism Forum, that all the tech companies contribute to. I believe it meets either on the West Coast or New York once in a while, and they've done a very quite quite good job over the last couple of years of of um, addressing this issue and setting up standards. And Katie, I was wondering if you think that any of those successes could be applied to uh, the issue of speech more broadly, or is just terrorism, is that just you know beyond the pale, clearly um, removable, and, or are there lessons from that that could be applied? No, I think, I think there's definitely lessons that can be learned from those, and I think you're starting to see some of those efforts starting to pop up, at least I know for sure, like in the election integrity space. I mean, there's all sorts of different organizations that are, that are popping up. I think the... The difficulty that we are all seeing is having them move at the speed at which we're moving and, and trying to have these conversations in the, and as we are trying to make decisions in real time, as, I mean, the elections are not stopping. There's always an election happening, happening somewhere. And so I think, and then also, too, trying to bridge that gap between people that have been around for a very long period of time and are very smart but may not understand the tech issues and the way that the technology is being used. And so there's going to be a bit of time in terms of bridging that gap in order for us to have that common understanding to help us to solve some of these issues. Yeah. Move fast with stable infra, as I always say. <laughs> um, OK, I think that's all the time we've got. Thanks, everyone, for the insightful questions. Thanks to all of you. There's going to be a lunch upstairs. Everybody's invited. There is such thing as a free lunch. It's uh, <laughs> restrooms are on the way on the second floor. Lunch is on the second floor. See you up there. Thanks. Thank you.